Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, if you got your Bibles, open them up to uh, chapter 39. We're going to cover 39 and 40. It's hard to believe we are basically four-fifths of the way through the book. Uh, so we're, we're getting near the end. We're not at the end yet. We've still got some uh, weeks to go. But we're going to pick up the story of the life of Joseph uh, this morning. And it'll uh, be in these two chapters, chapter 39 and 40. But before we begin, let me pray for us. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're grateful for the opportunity to study your word together. We're grateful for your word that you inspired men like Moses and Paul and others to write these books so that we could understand who you are and how you work and how we can look in these stories and we can see your sovereign will working its way out in ways that many of the characters don't see, don't have the privilege of seeing and, and never will see how the story ends. And, and so, Father, we're grateful that we can look back, we can see it, we can watch you work, and I pray that today we would see you clearly in these two chapters and be encouraged that we have a God who is with us at all times. You never leave us, you never forsake us. And so, Father, thank you for this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this week, um, Joseph is going to move down to Egypt. Okay, we saw last week how that, that story began to unfold in the life of this young man. And he's now on his way to Egypt. And it's going to end up being a nightmare because he had these dreams which caused his brothers to sell him into slavery. Now, it wasn't just the dreams that he had. Remember, he had these two dreams. You're going to bow down before me. And they didn't like that. But they also didn't like his stupid coat. They didn't like the fact that his father loved them, him more than them. There was all kinds of stuff going on last week that led to this event taking place in his life where he's going to go down into Egypt. And, and so really what you need to see is how God is working behind the scenes in all of these stories and, and really putting all the pieces together to accomplish his divine will. We saw last week that Judah unwilling, unwillingly, unknowingly, got his daughter-in-law pregnant because she deceived him because he had lied to her. And so she dresses up like a cult prostitute and he sees her on the, at the gate and he goes into her, he gets her pregnant. And then she comes and announces she's pregnant. And he says, stone her. And then she says, well, you might not want to do that because you're the father. And there's all kinds of mess that goes on. She gives birth to two boys one of those boys is Perez, and Perez, as we saw last week, is going to end up in the family tree of Jesus Christ. Again, the sovereign will of God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't understand. We can't fathom how God works his ways, why he does what he does, but this is all illustrating for you and I that we can trust God, that, that Perez, this really illegitimate son of Judah and his daughter-in-law is going to be in the family tree in the lineage of Jesus Christ. That's great news for us. It's great news that that happened, and it shows us that God does redeem unrighteous acts. It's been fun over the last week. Um, at each session, you know, I would sit at a different table during discussion and just hear, hear guys talk about that first question I gave you. Is, has there ever been a time in your life where God redeemed an unrighteous act of yours? And it was in, at every table, it was really kind of interesting because it would start out with everybody just staring at each other. Like, uh, I don't want to go, you go, you know. And, but as soon as it started, 
almost every guy had something where God redeemed an unrighteous act that that man had done somewhere along in his life, and yet God had redeemed it and restored him and done something great, even in spite of it. That's what these stories are for. They show us that God does sovereignly intervene in my life and in your life on a regular basis. But here's what jumps out at me in reading these stories. They don't know it. In other words, the characters that we're studying about, we're on the other side of the cross, right? We've got the completed canon of Scripture. We've read Revelation. We've studied Revelation. We know how the story ends. They don't know any of that. And sometimes we, we get on their case, like, how stupid can you be? Why don't you understand it? Open up, you know, open up your eyes. Well, they don't know what we know. They don't have what we have. And so nobody in the story understands what's going on. So Judah and Tamar really have no clue that God is going to redeem their unrighteous acts. They don't know how the story ends. They, they don't know about Jesus, Right. They've not been told there's no prophet, prophets yet, so therefore there's no prophecies yet concerning Jesus Christ. So they don't have a clue that Jesus Christ is coming, the Messiah. They don't have any promises. Think about it. No promises concerning Perez. N nowhere in this story does, does an angel appear to either Tamar or Judah and say, hey, don't you worry, Perez is going to be in the family tree of the Messiah. They're not told that. And, and it's hit me this, this last week thinking about this, that every time Judah saw Perez and his brother, what was it a reminder of? His sin. I slept with, with what I thought was a prostitute, a cult prostitute, a temple prostitute. It actually was my daughter-in-law who I had lied to, and I got her pregnant. And every time he saw those, I'm not saying he didn't love those boys, but every time he saw him, it was a reminder of his sin, not necessarily the family tree of Jesus Christ. He didn't know anything about that. The future of Perez and all his descendants, which ultimately lead to David and then ultimately to Jesus, is totally hidden from Judah, Tamar, and everybody in the story. And yet we have the privilege because of, again, the canon of Scripture, the completed canon of Scripture that we know how the story ends. And yet, we still wrestle with the sovereign will of God. We still wrestle with, could God be doing something here? Could this be God's will, or is it just bad luck on my part? I want you to understand that what we're going to get out of the story today is that not only is, is God in complete control at all times, God is always with us, and he never forsakes us. Here's the problem, though. We don't always see it. These characters don't see it. Um, Judah's family didn't see it. His sons didn't see it. They didn't know that what they were doing to their brother Joseph was actually part of the sovereign will of God in order that he might go down to Egypt. They don't understand any of that because it's not always apparent that God's sovereign will is working until long after the fact when we can look back in hindsight and go, wow. That's what was so cool about hearing guys share around the tables about how God redeemed an unrighteous act. It was years in most cases before they ever realized and looked back and went, man, God was all over that. I made one of the dumbest decisions in my life, and yet God redeemed it for my good and his glory. It doesn't change the fact that you sinned and you did something unrighteous, but it just shows that God can even take those things and accomplish his will. Think about the whole gospel story from Genesis to Revelation. 
Adam and Eve began the story with what? Sin. And God redeemed it. He's been redeeming it ever since, and he will completely redeem it, redeem it when his son returns. That's what the story's all about. But they don't always see it. The outcome of God's sovereign will is not always readily apparent. It's not, it's not, not always immediate, right? It doesn't happen tomorrow. See, I want God's sovereign will to be, get me out of this now. I don't want to suffer today. I don't want to suffer tomorrow. I don't want to suffer next week. I don't want this pain to continue. I want you to fix it now. And we all live in the present. We all live for the immediate. But the blessings of God are not always forthcoming. They're not always right there, right around the corner. Sometimes, graciously, they are. But sometimes they're not. I think I told you guys last week that last Saturday I went and visited one of our Thursday night guys, and he's, he's a volunteer. Uh, his son and my son played select soccer together for years, and he and his wife went on a vacation to Germany, and the day they got there, he had a massive stroke, 50, I think he's 54 years old. And as a result of that stroke, he is now, he's got paralysis on his left side. He's been learning to speak and walk again, and but he's also now been diagnosed with um, multiple myeloma, and it's all up and down his spine, and it's in his hips. So I went and visited him on, on last Saturday, and um, he greeted me at the door because he wanted to show me that I can walk, and I almost burst into tears because he's been working on that so hard. Well, now he's got cancer, and I said, how are you doing? He goes, well, to be honest, it's not news I wanted to hear. He said, I've been working so hard on just being able to talk again and walk again, and I'm working on getting movement back in my left side, but he said, that was like a brick to the forehead. And yet he goes, you know what? But I'm okay with it because I know where I'm going. I know God's got a plan for me. I'm praying that I'll be healed. I'm praying that, he said, right now they're talking in just years, maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe six years. They can't cure it. They can only extend it. And yet he's not lost hope. And that was convicting to me because I guarantee if I'd walked out of his house and had a flat tire, I would have spiraled into depression. Oh, God, look at this. I got a flat tire and I got work to do. I got to get home. And this guy's got the effects of a stroke and multiple myeloma, and he's still trusting God. See, the blessings aren't always there when we'd like them, and they're not always in the form that we would like them. God's timing is rarely the way we would like it to be. And when it doesn't show up the way we want it, when his timing is not according to our terms, we get angry at God and we shake our fist at God. But guys, I want you to see in this story that Joseph at no point ever shakes his fist at God. He never gets angry with God. He never rails at God about, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I can't believe you let this happen. I can't believe he just simply continues to trust I love this, this quote from Ralph Abernathy. He says, I may not know what the future may hold, but I know who holds the future. I, I know God's got the future. And if I don't believe that, if I don't really stand on that promise that he holds the future, I am going to lose hope regularly, constantly, persistently, because I, I lose sight of the fact that he, he's got this thing. I know how the story ends. I know how this story ends. And even though I was, I was listening to it on my uh, car radio coming in, listening to chapter 39 and 40 being read to me in the car, and I kept going, God, this is so unfair. I, I don't like this. I don't like what's happening to this, this kid who's now going to grow up into be a man. 
but God has his future in control. God is sovereign, and belief in his sovereignty requires a a series of things. The first is you got to live with an eternal perspective, right? You got to live with the future in mind. We know how the story ends, and you got to trust that God is faithful all the time. Even in the midst of sorrow, pain, suffering, he is faithful. And hope is in the unseen. See, we live in a temporal world. We, we live right here, and we want everything to be fulfilled here, but our future hope is yet unseen. We can't see eternity. We can't see the final kingdom. We don't know what it's going to be like exactly, but we should know that it is real and it is coming because Christ has promised, I will come back one day. I thought about it this morning driving in that, that two weeks ago when Mitchell talked on chapter 36, he, he, he belabored the point that Esau, the non-chosen son, is down in Edom with all his descendants, and they're being blessed beyond belief. They got land, they got cattle, they got sheep, they, they got kings and princes, they, everything's looking great, but they don't have the presence of God. They have the blessings of God, but not the presence of God. Joseph is going to be blessed repeatedly, but he's going to have the presence of God because some of those blessings are going to dissipate. Some of those blessings are going to turn into what appear to be curses. And yet, he can always depend on the presence of God. Look at this. Romans 8.28 is one of the questions I had you do, uh, do at your tables last week. Read this verse, and how do you see it in the story of Joseph from last week? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is a coffee mug verse. This is a verse we put in a coffee mug, we put in a plaque, we hang it on the wall, and then we ignore it. We love it, but I don't know that we fully believe it because it doesn't seem in my life that all things do work together for good for those who love the Lord. Well, what's he talking about? Well, to understand it, you got to go on and read the rest of the passage, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, he chose us so that we might become more like Christ. That's the process. That's the goal. Not your good, your happiness, not that everything's copacetic in your life, and you have no problems, no worries. No, it's that you might become more like Christ. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that we might one day be like Christ. We know that when he returns, we will see him and we will be like him, sinless, glorified body, fully righteous in every way. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. In other words, made right with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how he ends this passage. What's the good he's talking about in verse 28? All things work together for good. What's the good? This, your glorification. See, the good is not that you get healed from cancer. That's a great thing. I'm praying that for Sean McLaughlin. I pray that God will heal him of cancer. I pray that God will restore the left side of his body. But that's not the good that Paul is talking about. The good is the great news that one day we will be glorified. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're suffering from, whatever tough things are going on in your life, the good is that you will survive this and you will be one day glorified. And it'll all make sense. It'll all make sense in the end. It, it, it will all connect, right? God will connect all the dots one day for you. 
I, I can look at my life sometimes and I can go, man, it's also disconnected. It's also confusing. It doesn't look like God knows what he's doing. I can't believe any good can come out of this. This, this makes no sense to me whatsoever. But guess what? God will connect all the dots one day and his sovereignty will become perfectly clear. And you'll be able to look back and maybe it comes with age. I don't know. But I know the older I get, the more I can look back and I can see the hand of God in my life over and over and over again. In spite of me, in spite of all the stupid decisions I've made, in spite of my unfaithfulness, he has been faithful all along the way. Doesn't mean it's been fun. Doesn't mean it hasn't had its ups and downs and, and the times when I've wanted to go, God, you're, you're, you're nuts. You don't know what you're doing. I can't believe you're allowing this to happen to me. But guess what? He knows what he's doing. And hindsight is always 2020. Looking back. See, I, I, I truly believe this. For you to live as a Christian on this planet during this time on earth, you got to keep your head on a swivel. And by that, I mean you, you've always got to look back from where you came. Paul talks about this, about this all the time. Don't forget. Don't forget. You once were like this, but now you're like this. And here's what you have to look forward to. Looking back at what you used to be, but always looking forward to what you're going to become. See, that's that process in ch chapter 8 of Romans that the good is that he's called you, he's predestined you, he's, he's redeeming you, he's justifying you, he has already glorified you. It's as good as done. I know you don't believe this, but I don't have a glorified body. Neither do you. But I will. And according to that passage, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. I'm going to try to preserve this one for as long as I can, but guys, I'm going to get a new one, so will you. And I can count on it because God is faithful. I love this. Earlier in that same chapter, he says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We get new bodies. I don't have a clue what it looks like. I don't know how much hair I'm going to have. I don't know what color it's going to be. I don't know how much I'm going to weigh. I don't know how tall I'm going to be. All I know is no pain, no suffering, no sin, no sorrow. I'm going to get something new for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, if it's right there in my hand, I don't have to hope for it. But right now, I do have to hope for it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, all of this is just preface for this story. Now, here's what I know. If you grew up in the church like I did, you know the story. Well, you know facets of the story. You know the Sunday school version of the story. Um, but you may not know the whole story. So let's just look at it. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. That ties right back to what we talked about last week. At the end of chapter 38, there's this movement downward that at news that, that his son has died, he, he thinks, Jacob says, I'm, I'm going to go down to Sheol. I'm going to mourn for the rest of my life. And it's this downward movement. Then it says that, his son Joseph goes down to Egypt, and then it tells us in the very next chapter that Judah goes down to a place called Chizib, and there's this downward spiral that's taking place. The movement in the text is down, and it picks it up in chapter 39. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Moses is working really hard, crafting his words in such a way to let 
his readers know that it looks like everything's getting bad, everything's going down, but yet look what he says. The Lord was with Joseph. And this, is, this has hit me so hard this week that in this story, everything looks dark and foreboding and bad for Joseph, and yet God is with him. How long has he been with him? He was with him back in Canaan when he was wearing a pretty coat, and he was the favorite of his father, and when he was hacking off all his brothers. He was with him when he went to Dothan to check on them. He was with him when he was in the pit. He was with him all the way from Dothan down to Egypt with those Ishmaelite slave traders. He, he's with him all throughout the story. God never leaves him. God never forsakes him. He's with him. And look what it says. He became a successful man. God's with him, and then God's doing something with him. He, he's doing something with his life. He's successful. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. He's a slave, guys. Don't, don't let that escape you. He is a slave. He has no power. He has no rights. He has no authority. And yet he's successful. And his master saw that he, the Lord was with him. Even this Egyptian sees that, man, there's something going on in this guy's life. He's got some kind of divine blessing on him. The Egyptians believed in gods. They had a whole lot of gods. They didn't necessarily know much about his God, but he knows that this Hebrew who worships a different God than their gods is being blessed by his God. He sees it. It's all over him. And the Lord was with him. He saw that the Lord was with him. Now stop and think about that. How do you see that the Lord is with somebody? I can't look into your soul, right? I don't know what's in your heart, but I can see the blessings of God in you and they can take physical form, tangible form. So he sees something. And that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Again, slave living in the house of this officer in the court of Pharaoh. And he looks at this guy and everything seems to turn to gold. He, he's blessing his, his own house. Joseph is blessing the house of Potiphar because his God is blessing him. So Joseph found favor in his sight and he attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. This Egyptian takes this young slave and he makes him basically the master of his house. He puts him in charge of everything, everything in his house. And then the time that he made him, from that the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for whose sake? Joseph's sake. Now again, you have to stop and go, why? Why is this happening? Why, did, why is God blessing Joseph? Well, the easy answer is, well, he's been taken advantage of by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. He's been bought, and now he's living as a slave in the house of an Egyptian, and so God's blessing him. But why? Why is God blessing him? Because some things are going to happen that don't seem to be a blessing right after this. So why is this going on? It says, he blesses him for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. God was with him. God is blessing him. And God's not only blessing him, he's blessing his master. He's blessing Potiphar. Right now, this sounds like a great story, right? This, this sounds like, man, God's all over this. God's got his best in mind. God is bringing him success, favor, and it's the presence of God. See, Moses has belabored the point. He's with him. He's with him. He's with him. Now he's saying, the invisible presence of God becomes visible. I have never seen God. 
but I've seen God work. And I've seen God's presence manifested in my life, in y'all's lives, in the life of this church. He does show up. And he shows up sometimes in the oddest, strangest ways and at seemingly the worst timing. Because look at his life. Everything's moving downward, right? He's a slave. He's in Egypt. He's abandoned. He's alone. He has no family there. He's separated from all his brothers, which is not a bad thing at this point. He's separated from his dad, which is not a good point. But he's all alone. He's, he's no longer a favored son. He's a slave. He's no longer wearing this really pretty garment. He's wearing slave clothes. Everything looks negative. He has no rights. He, he can't go and do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And everything about his life looks dark and foreboding, except that we've just seen he's blessed beyond belief. God is blessing him. God is taking care of him. And the question is, is he alone? Is he alone? Well, what has Moses said repeatedly? The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord is blessing him. So he's not alone. He's not left by himself. He may be the only Hebrew in that household. He may be a young slave living in an uh, Egyptian's home, but he's not alone. What, what is Moses telling him, telling us? God's with him. Now, again, I'm going to beat this drum again. Who's this written to? It's written to the people of Israel standing on the banks of the Jordan River, getting way, ready to cross over to take the land promised to, to their patriarch Abraham. And Moses is telling them this story, and he's saying, God is with you too. And God will be with you. He's here on this bank. He'll be on that bank if you'll just trust him. God was with Joseph. So how is his presence revealed? Well, we, we just saw it. How's it revealed? Visible signs of God's presence. We see him in Joseph's life. You see him in yours. He became a successful man. Now, not all success is necessarily of God. I can become successful through wrong means, right? I, I can cheat somebody out of their money like Jacob did his brother. I can do all kinds of things to become wealthy and successful. But in this case, it says that Joseph was successful because God is there with him. It says the Lord caused all that he, had, he did to succeed. Everything he touched seemed to work out well. It says Joseph found favor in his Potiphar's sight. His employer looked at him and, and was favorable to him because he saw something in his life that stood out. So he makes him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. God is revealing himself in the life of Joseph through tangible means. And Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Sometimes we don't realize that God has done things in our lives in such a way that he has revealed himself. Oftentimes, others see it before we see it. You, you've probably heard somebody say, man, you're a blessed man. And it's usually after they meet your kids or your grandkids. Man, you're a blessed man. Or they meet your wife. Man, you're a blessed man. I get people, when they meet my wife, they always go, man, you are one lucky guy. I'm like, yeah, it, her, her name should be Grace, because I don't deserve her. But see, guys, we should see that in our lives, God is revealing his presence in so many ways, but we don't recognize it as God's presence. And yet it's not always going to be good, right? It's not always going to be everything successful and everything I touch works out. 
it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't work out in Joseph's life. It most certainly hasn't worked out that way in my life. But we can know that God is present, right? Look at this. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. He could see the results of God's presence in this young man's life. He does not know anything about Yahweh. He's not a Yahweh worshiper. He doesn't know that God, but he knows he's the God of this young man because he's a Hebrew. And he realizes that Yahweh is blessing him. Yahweh is with him. Now, he worshiped a whole lot of gods himself, but I don't know that he thought his life was as blessed as this young man's because it says that he actually succeeded more because of Joseph than before Joseph got there. Even he's getting blessed. You know, this world is blessed because we're here. That's why I believe in the rapture of the church because when the church gets pulled out of this place, it goes to hell in a handbasket. The only thing holding this world in any kind of form of unity is the presence of the people of God. We're not perfect, but you take us away and just imagine what it's like when there's no believers on the planet. See, we can impact even the lost while we're here, which is why we are here. We're to be salt and light. We're to be witnesses. We're to have an influence. We're to be change makers while we're here. So Potiphar notices. He notices the hand of Yahweh. That's the word that's used here. It's Jehovah, the God of Israel, the existing one. He goes, man, this Hebrew is being blessed by the existing one. He's being blessed by Jehovah. And he embraces that idea that this God of the Hebrews blesses his people. He takes care of them. Isn't that why anybody worships any God is they want to be blessed? They want this God to do something for them, make them fruitful, make them successful. And he sees it in the life of this young man. He saw what Jacob failed to see. See, Jacob didn't fully understand what was going on in his son's life. He was his favorite, but he didn't really understand that it was his favorite son who would be used in a mighty way. He didn't really understand the dream when Joseph said, hey, one day, dad, mom, brothers, you're all going to bow down to me. And his dad goes, what are you, nuts? You really think mom and I are going to bow down to you? Well, yeah, you are. But he didn't get it. Potiphar, an Egyptian, understands Yahweh more than Jacob does. And his brothers certainly didn't understand this. This, this idea that the people who are supposed to be worshiping Yahweh don't understand that Yahweh is a God who is existent and present, and he blesses his people. But Potiphar does. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, this is where it takes a, a negative turn. And this is part of the story you're familiar with. For whatever reason, this is probably one of our favorite parts of the story. I'm not really sure why, because it's the seedy part of the story. It says, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Potiphar's wife, she goes unnamed, gets the hots for Joseph. He's a good-looking young man, and she wants him. This is a woman who evidently is used to getting what she wants. She's married to a fairly wealthy man. She's used to getting things, clothes, jewelry, and she sees this young man, and she says, lie with me, sleep with me, have sex with me. 
and she's going to pursue him. But he refused, and he said, no, I I can't do this. There's a change in the story. Something's about to happen. He's blessed. He's successful. The Lord is with him, and then this happens. This woman casts her eyes on Joseph, and she decides she wants something. And there's an interesting comparison here. It says that Joseph found favor in his Potiphar's sight. When he looked on him, he found favor in his master's sight. But what happens when Potiphar's wife looks on him? She sees something different. It says his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. She sees him, and she finds favor, but for the wrong reason, right? Not because Yahweh's blessing him, but she wants to be, quote, blessed by Joseph. She's driven by lust. She's driven by her desire. She wants what she wants. And it reminds me of James chapter 1, right? Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. This woman is rife with this. She is, she is totally driven by what? Her lust, her eyes. It goes right back to 1 John 2.16. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This woman is living out the standard of the world. I see something, I want it, I'm going to take it. I have every right to it. And I think it's going through her mind, hey, he's a slave, he works for us, I can do whatever I want to do. You belong to me, you are property, and you will satisfy my desires. But Joseph refuses. refuses. He says, no, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Think about that statement. What is he saying? I am on an equal standing with your your husband. I have just as much power as he has because he has given it to me. I can do anything in this house except one thing, sleep with you. I can't do that, but I'm in control of his finances. I'm I'm in control of all the rest of the slaves. He says, but because you're his his wife, I I can't do this wickedness. This is wickedness. I would be sinning against God. And it says she pursued him day after day after day. This woman's persistent, driven by what? Temptation, desire, lust, passion. And she wants him to sleep with her, to be with her. But he goes, I can't can't create the, I can't commit this great wickedness. And what jumps out at me is that he doesn't emulate his nephews. He doesn't emulate Er. Remember what happened to Er? Heir was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We have no idea what he did. All we know is that God deemed him wicked and took his life. How about Onan? He did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We know what he did. He was supposed to get Tamar pregnant, the widow of Er, his brother, so that the line can continue. And he goes, I don't want to do that. So he spilled the seed every time they had sex. He, he, he refused to keep the, the Leverite vow of marriage. And so God kills him. See, Joseph knows God's with him and he's going to live according to God's will. Think how easy it would have been for him to go, you know, I'm a long way from home. She's attractive. She's rich. She wants me. Technically, she's my master. Sorry, Lord. I got to do what I got to do. But he didn't. He, He didn't give in. He didn't sin against God. There's this idea that that he understands that God is with me every step of the way, every day. 
And it's, a, it's what we should live with. No matter where you go, no matter what you look at, no matter what you turn on on the TV, God is watching it with you. God is with you at all times. See, he knew God was with him, and he's not going to sin against God. And distance from Canaan doesn't change that, right? He's a long way from home, but it doesn't matter because God is everywhere. It has nothing to do with geography. It has to do with God's faithfulness. So his distance from Canaan was no excuse. I'm a long way from home. I can do what I want. When I left Long Island as a senior, graduated senior from high school, and I went all the way south to Waco, Texas to begin school, my attitude was, I'm a long way from home. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to go to church anymore. I've gone to church every Sunday my entire life, and guess what? I ain't going anymore. I'm not going to read my Bible anymore. I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm going to hang out with who I want to hang out with. Now, you got to keep in mind, I was a religion major. I didn't go to church. I didn't pray. I, I drank constantly. I took drugs. I sold drugs. I, I, I lived out this idea that I'm so far from home that I can do whatever I want. But guess who was with me every step of the way? God. He never left me because every night when I laid my head on the pillow, he spoke to me and I was miserable, and he was calling me, and I was miserable, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and he never left me. He never forsook me. He kept, he's what uh, one, one great old theologian said, he's the hound of heaven. He will not let you go. He didn't let me go. See, he knew that he couldn't run. His circumstances could not condone compromise. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a slave. I, you know, the world's been rough to me, and I, you know, I deserve some pleasure. I deserve this. I've, I've counseled so many couples that have ended up in going through divorce and ended up in divorce where somewhere along the way, somebody, one of them said, I deserve this. What a lie. What a lie from the pit of hell. You don't deserve anything. You certainly don't deserve to sin. You, you certainly don't deserve to satisfy your desires just because you want to satisfy your desires. Now, Thanks to God's grace, God has redeemed many people from that. But, but guys, this guy doesn't take advantage of it. His exile in Egypt didn't give him carte blanche to do whatever he wants. It's not like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I, I, man, I, I get to do what I want down here because Dad's not here, and my brothers aren't here, and you know, maybe God's not here. What's fascinating about this story, as we move forward, as the people of Israel, his descendants who end up living in Egypt will do this very thing. They will forget God and they will worship the gods of Egypt. They'll forget the gods with them. That's why Moses, when God says, hey, I want you to go set my people free, he goes, who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? Because they don't have a clue who Yahweh is. But in this story, Joseph knows exactly who he is. God's presence and precepts were inescapable to Joseph. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to be obedient. And I love this passage from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shield, the grave, you're there. God's everywhere. He goes on and says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, I can hide in the dark, the light, about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
I can look at my life during those years when I was living in Waco, apart from the Lord, living in darkness, pursuing darkness. God was with me every single day. I took him to places I shouldn't have taken him. I did things in front of his eyes I never should have done, but he never left me. That's the beauty of this story. It's the beauty of the the whole scriptures is that God was with him, even in that dark moment, because what happens? One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was in the house, perfect scenario, right? Perfect storm. She, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She is not going to give up. And so one day, it just so happens, she's going to get her way, she thinks. And there's going to be this epic battle between good and evil, between Joseph and this woman. But God was with him even then. God had prospered him all along the way. God had made him successful in that house. But he's not immune from spiritual attack, right? You are not immune from spiritual attack. You come to this Bible study, and that's wonderful, but guess what? That doesn't mean your whole day is going to be great because you went to this Bible study. I wish I could guarantee that. If I could guarantee that, this room would be packed. If I could tell guys, you come to my Bible study, and your day will go like clockwork. God will bless you beyond belief. That's why many churches are filled, but they're not preaching the gospel. They're preaching something other than the gospel, the get-rich-quick gospel, the the blessings of God gospel, but they're not preaching this, that this kid, young man, is faithful, but he's going to come under increasingly harsh spiritual attack. See, God's presence didn't make her do right. God could have stopped her, but God didn't. Because God had a plan. God was working that plan. So what does Joseph do? He runs for his life. He flees he leaves his garment in her hand and he runs. He just, he just gets out of the house. And it says, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that, she's going to kick into motion her plan. But he gets out of Dodge. He, he runs for his life. Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Get out. Escape it, run from it, do the right thing, don't give in. He goes on and says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, take hold of that future glory. Don't don't delve into these temporal pleasures. So what does he do? He runs, he escapes. But here's what just blows me away in the story. It's the right thing to do. He does the right thing, but it gets the wrong response, it seems. Because what happens? As soon as she saw that he left his garment in her hand and fled of the house, she called to the men of her household. Suddenly, they show back up. Just suddenly. I think she had them out of the house so she could do this. And when he ran, she called them back in the house and said, hey, here's what he did. And basically, she's going to accuse him of attempted rape. Now, remember, he's a slave. He's found favor in Potiphar's sight. But when Potiphar gets wind of this, that this kid tried to rape my wife, he's not going to be a happy camper, right? So he throws him into prison. Joseph goes from what seemingly is a really good place to a really bad place. But the Lord was with Joseph. That's how it starts out. He's in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. What should we learn with this? The Lord was always with Joseph. What should you learn from this? The Lord is always with you, regardless of what's going on in your life. 
And it says he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all things. It's, it's reiterating the story all over again. New scene, new scenario. Now it's prison, not Potiphar's house, but God is still with him and God is still blessing him. The name Yahweh occurs here at what is the most uncertain moment in the life of Joseph. His future hangs in the balance. He is alone in Egypt, separated from family, vulnerable and with a cloud over his future. Yet, is he alone? No. I think we've learned that, right? Only the narrator, Moses, Never any of the characters uses the name Yahweh. Thus, it is the narrator who tells us no less than five times that in this very precarious situation, Joseph is not really alone. Why? Because Yahweh is with him. Man, get that out of this lesson. Walk away with that. God is with you. Right now, yes. But even when you leave this room, God will be with you because things are not always going to be what they appear to be. What we see as negative, what we see as a curse is oftentimes the hand of God getting ready to do something significant in your life. See, Joseph has been wrongly accused, falsely accused. He's been accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife, and he's now going to fall from grace. He's going to fall from favor down into disfavor, and he's in prison. (coughs) And what you need to understand is the penalty for this is going to be death. And yet, we know the story, right? He doesn't die. God's going to bless him. God's going to take care of him. God is going to redeem him. God's going to do great things through him. But it's going to take this negative turn first. It says, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. He gives him control. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Same thing that happened in Potiphar's house. Why? Because the Lord was with him. That's the theme, right, for this chapter. God is with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Potiphar's house, prison. Doesn't matter. Ups, downs, good, bad. God was with him, and God is taking care of him. So why did God allow this woman to put Joseph in this compromising and potentially catastrophic catastrophic situation? Could God not have prevented it? Sure he could have. Why did faithful Joseph have to endure yet another case of undeserved and premeditated vengeance, just like he did from his brothers. He had nothing to deserve being sold. He had done nothing to deserve being sold into slavery. And now he had done nothing to deserve being falsely accused of attempted rape. But it's important to remember what Moses points out four different times in this chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the theme. That's the lesson. That's what we need to learn. And so we're going we're gonna to blow through chapter 40 because it's just kind of a synopsis of this. This, this chapter, which again, we're kind of familiar with, tells us what happens next. Sometime after this, where is he? Prison. The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, their king, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was angry with these two men, the cupbearer, the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, Potiphar, just so happens to be Potiphar, in the prison where Joseph was confined. Hmm, what, what luck, what happenstance, what fate, what fortune, what kismet, whatever you want to call it, it's none of those things, right? This is the sovereign hand of God, that this happened. It just so happened that this took place. It shows us that God is sovereign and his timing is impeccable. It's perfect. 
It always happens just as the way it should happen. See, what, what escapes is that, is that he's now been in Egypt 11 years, most of which has been in this prison. His little glimpse of the good life at Potiphar's house didn't last very long. Most of it's been 11, probably 10 or 11 years in prison. He's now 28 years old. He's in prison for rape. The penalty for that is death. He has no idea what's facing him. He just knows God's with him, and he's doing the best he can to live in the will of God because God got him right where he's supposed to be. I don't like this story. I don't like the fact that he's in prison. I don't want to go to prison. I don't like some of the things that happen in my life, but here's what, none of it's a mistake. If God is sovereign over all things, none of this is a mistake. He's suffering for divinely ordained purpose because we know he's done nothing to deserve it. He's not committed any crime. He actually ran. He did the right thing, but he's suffering for it because God has a plan for his life. So it just so happens, Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer get arrested. It, It seems from the text that they committed a crime together. It says that they committed an offense against Pharaoh. We don't know what it is. And they end up in the same prison. They commit the crime together. They end up in prison together with Joseph and they're placed under his care. Once again, the sovereign will, the sovereign hand of God, and they continued for some time in custody. This goes on. We don't know how long exactly, but they stay there. And then it says one night, they both dreamed. Now stop and think about this. Just so happened to be there, just so happened to be with Joseph. They happen to be in this prison. He's taking care of them. And it just so happens they both have a dream on the same night. That's, that's not just luck. It's not just something that happened. It's the will of God. Both dreamed. The cupbearer, the baker, the king of Egypt, both were confined to the prison. Each his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. So what's going on here? Well, as luck would have it, they just happen to have committed a crime together. They happen to get arrested together. They happen to go to prison together, the very same prison where Joseph is, and they both have this dream, different dreams, on the very same night. Man, if that's not the will of God, the hand of God, the sovereign expression of his providential power, I don't know what else is, and yet their dreams are similar but very, very different. Look at this. Cupbearer. I saw three branches on a grapevine, covered in grapes, pressed into wine, and I served it to Pharaoh. What is the baker? I had, I had three baskets. They were on my head. They were full of cakes. I baked them for Pharaoh, but the birds ate them. They're very similar, right? They're not going to have a similar interpretation. It's not going to turn out well for one of them. Who does the interpretation? Joseph. This is fascinating to me. Has he ever interpreted a dream before? No. Not that we can see from the text. He's had dreams. He's never interpreted them. But he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. I'll tell you what they mean. That's kind of bold, right? This is long before the the gifts of the Spirit. You know, where's he getting this from? Because he, God's with me. Dreams are meant to tell us the will of God. So tell me your dreams. I'll tell you what they mean. They share their dream and Joseph discloses their meaning. What's their meaning? Look at this. Cupbearer, he tells him, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. You will be forgiven and you will be restored. Baker, he hears that and he goes, man, I'm telling him my dream too because this is going to be good. 
The three baskets are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Very similar dreams with two very dissimilar meanings, right? Here's what jumps out at me. If they both committed the same crime together, why is one being spared? Because it's the sovereign will of God, as the story will reveal. So what happens? On the third day, three days later, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He releases them from prison. He brings them back. And it says he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just like the dream and just like the interpretation by Joseph. And he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Why is this last verse so important? Because Joseph said, hey, this is the interpretation of your dream, cupbearer, but just remember me and tell Pharaoh about my plight. I don't belong here. I don't belong in Egypt and I don't belong in prison. I've done nothing wrong. Please remember me, but it says he forgot him. He forgets all about him. So how do we wrap this up? He's forgotten by the cupbearer, but he's not forgotten by God, and he's not forsaken by God. See, to the cupbearer, he's going to go about his life. He's been spared from death, and Joseph is out of sight, out of mind, forgets all about him. But who's still with Joseph? God. His circumstances are not proof of abandonment. Two years are going to go by, guys, and he's going to sit in that prison waiting and waiting, and God is still with him. And that prison is going to be the portal to what? Divine enablement. God's going to do something great. Look at this. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. But the response from God is, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I, God, will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. So here's your questions. If that's true of Zion, the people of Israel, it's also true of the people of God today, you, me, believers in Jesus Christ. So why are current circumstances not a reliable tool for measuring God's presence and future plans? You know, something's going to happen probably today, sometime this week, that you don't like, that doesn't seem to be God's will. How is it wrong to judge God's presence and his future plans based on that circumstance? It's temporary. It won't last forever. Why is that a bad measurement? Secondly, read Philippians 4, 12 through 13. Why is it essential that we develop the same attitude that Paul had? And then finally, how does knowing that God will never leave or forsake you provide courage to face whatever life may hold today, tomorrow, next week, next year, the next decade? God is with you. Father, thank you for this encouragement, this word from you that you are with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. The good, the bad, the ugly of life, you are there. And, and Lord, you are working behind the scenes in ways that we can't see, and your timing is impeccable. It's perfect in all ways. And Lord, you are moving us across from being chosen to being glorified. You are just, you've already justified us. Now you are sanctifying us. And part of that process sometimes brings, brings pain and suffering and trials. And by those we grow, we learn to trust you. So Father, as we talk around the tables, again, open our lips to say what you would have us to say and to, our ears to hear what you would have us to hear. And that, Father, we may walk away today knowing that you are with us all the time, every day. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.